Well, why don't we go ahead and get started, and uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get into today's study. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercies that are new every morning, for your word, which shows us who you are and why we're here and what you've done to save sinners like us. We pray that you bless our time together this morning in Malachi. May we learn more about you and ourselves, and may uh, your Holy Spirit apply these things that we learn to our hearts so that we might live rightly before you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to have a good time learning about God's judgment. But before we do that, I just want to, as by way of intro, just recall the expe- like where we're at Malachi, what the expectations are, what the reality is. This is post-exilic, right? The people have returned from exile. They're, they've made their way back to Jerusalem. They have rebuilt the temple. And so they have these expectations as they're coming in to the land, right? And the, the temple has been rebuilt. And those expectations can really be summed up in Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. This was the expectation of the, your everyday Israelite when they would come back into the land that God had given them, that God had pushed them out of, sent them into exile for their disobedience, and brought them back in. Deuteronomy 35 says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land your, that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So it's a word of blessing, like it's going to be better. It was good when we were here before, it's going to be better upon our return. And in that light, is it better when they return? What's the reality that they face? Big disappointment. Big disappointment. Why is it a big disappointment? Because it isn't anything like the temple that Solomon built. So the temple's not as glorious. And they're not free. They're not free. They're still under Persian control, right? What else? Are they prosperous? No. No, they're scratching out a living, right? They're living in poverty. They can't hardly make ends meet. There's no real manifestation of God's presence in the temple, right? Which has always been true. But now God doesn't seem to be there. They're just trying to make ends meet basically living in poverty. And so they're disgruntled, right? They're a little apathetic about God and all His promises. Is God really here? Are these things really true? They're facing opposition, drought, pestilence. So they're a little skeptical, right? To say the least of all of God's promises. So Malachi, as God's messenger, brings the people a word from the Lord. And his message, as Sam brought to our attention, is his message and the, the structure of Malachi is six disputations, right? There's six accusations that the Lord's going to lay against his people to address why they're living the way they're living. Why not the glorious return? Why, why is it like this? And he's going to address that. So the first disputation was, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? We, we looked at that in chapter 1. And what does God answer them? How did, how did God say, no, I have loved you? How did, he, how did he prove that? You guys remember any of you? That? Compared to Esau and uh, Jacob. Right. One he forgave and the other one 
hated. Right. Jacob have I loved, Esau I've hated. Look, the Edomites, I have they, I've destroyed them. They'll never prosper. I'll never give them the land, right? I, I'm wiping them off the face of the earth. But you, you, here you are. Here you are back in the land. Why? Because of my mercy. Because I've chosen you. I've, you are my people, right? So he's like, I do love you. If I didn't love you, you wouldn't be here right now, right? Okay. And then last week we started the second disputation, which starts in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And so the rest of that chapter from verse 7 through 14, Malachi gives an indictment on the people. So he raises these facts. What, what are those facts? How, what's the crux of the matter their offerings, their sacrifices were um, blemished. Right. They were bringing not the best of their flock, but the worst of their flock, right? The blind, the, the, the diseased, the lame, right? So they're bringing those, and the, the people are bringing those, and the priests are accepting those offerings and sacrificing them to the Lord. So those substandard sacrifices revealed that they, in fact, disrespected and dishonored the Lord by not obeying Him and not giving Him His full honor He's due. They would, Malachi says, even, you wouldn't even present this to the governor of Persia if he showed up, but you're giving it to me. That is how you're dishonoring me. So he takes, he's disgusted with their sacrifices and he takes no pleasure in it. So today we're going to look at God's rebuke and threatened judgment as a result of this indictment. So this is part two. Last week we looked at the indictment. This week we're going to look at God's judgment for this behavior. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already to Malachi chapter 2 verse 1 through 9 is what we're going to look at today. And if someone wants to read it, that would be great. I think Sam normally has somebody read. Somebody wants to tackle it's a It's not too much. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offsprings, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways 
but show partiality in your instruction. All right, thanks, Josh. So from last week, we saw the indictment, what the people and the priests were doing wrong. It was he addresses the priests, but actually enfolded in this indictment is the whole people of Israel are enfolded. But when we get to Malachi 2, God centers his judgment on the priests, right? So this whole judgment is is pointed to, zeroed in on the priests. The the Lord says, O priests, right? O priests, O priests. I don't know. That seems ominous to me. It's like foreboding, right? If he just said, you priests, but you, O priest. That's like my mom using my middle name to call me. <laughs> like, oh no, this isn't going to be good, right? <laughs> so that's what we have in view here. And the way this passage is structured, I thought about going through it line by line, but that seemed rather tedious. So I want to look at this in sections, and hopefully that'll help us kind of unpack um, what's going on here in this passage. So I want to cover these things that we see in the passage. God's judgment threatened on the priests, specifically. And then we'll look at the failures of the priesthood. And then we'll look at the marks of a godly priesthood and the application for us as New Covenant people. So that's kind of how how this is going to go. So we'll look at God's judgment threatened first. And so what I did is I took the verses where God's judgment is threatened against the priest, and it's in verse 2, 3, and 9, and then I just kind of mashed it together. So, So we'll get to the heart of God's judgment here, and I'll read this. So listen for God's judgment in this. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality and instruction. That sums up. The threatened judgment, it's, the Lord says it's going to happen. In fact, it's already started to happen, but this is the judgment. And so what, what is the first thing we see God threatening to do to the priests in this? What's his first threat of judgment? Curse their blessings. Then I will send a curse upon you, Right? Then I will send the curse upon you. The first thing he says, he's going to curse them, right? What do you think in your mind? What, what does that look like? If, I, if God says he's going to curse them, what do the, how would the priest understand that? I would think of all the possible ways, you know. Pain and poverty and uh, disrespect. Yeah. Think of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy. Right, right. Turn to that. Turn to Deuteronomy 28. God, Moses has told the people to go up Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and he's going to recount the covenant and the blessings and the curses for all the tribes. There was half the tribes are going to be on Mount Gerizim, and half the tribes are going to be on Mount Ebal, right? But they were all going to be there. Just some, some were going to stand there, and some were going to stand up here, and they're going to hear and recite the blessings and curses. And if you look at Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen through sixty-eight, 
that summarizes the curses. If they don't follow God's laws and ordinances, right? All His commands. If you, if you obey, what happens? You keep the land. You prosper. You're blessed, right? You're blessed in your house. You're blessed when you stand up. You're blessed when you walk out. You're blessed when you sleep. You're blessed in the kitchen. You're blessed at your work. You're blessed everywhere. Blessings, blessings, blessings. But then if you disobey, then the curse, right? You're cursed. You're cursed when you stand. You're, you're cursed when you lie down. You're cursed when you walk in. You're cursed when you walk out. And it goes on. And the curses are numerous, right? You see in uh, verse 20, the, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you, do, that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And you see it, pestilence, wasting disease, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blight, mildew, defeated before your enemies. Your dead bodies will be eaten by the birds, right? And it goes on. What else? I mean, there's a lot there. There's like 40 verses of curses versus the 14 verses. Right. It's going to go into future generations. Right. It just, it's, it's a curse. I'll tell you what, it's not... So these are the things God is going to bring upon His people, His priest. Boils, tumors, scabs, itch. I mean, it goes on. You're going to marry, but she won't be your wife. You'll build a house. It won't be yours. You'll plant a vineyard. It's not going to be owned by you. You'll never see, you'll never drink the wine from it. You know, it goes on and on. So this is the curse. So when God says He's going to send the curse upon them, that's what's coming. In fact, it's already started. That's why they're living in squalor. That's why they're not prosperous right now. Okay. The second curse. God will curse their blessings. What do you think God has in view here? God will curse their blessings. Now we're talking about the priests, right? The priests are the one, ones being cursed. That will curse... I guess we need to think of what their blessings were. They were the priests. That was a blessing to be named priest. So I say that was cursed. Yeah. Their priesthood. Their priesthood will be cursed, right? What was the what was the function of the priests? To offerings, right? Right. To, for the offerings to mediate between God and man, prepare the sacrifices, be God's be the representative of man to God, right? They were mediating that. And part of that is they're going to bless the people, right? They bless the people in their office. So you think of the blessing, I think of Numbers 6.24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of His face upon you and give you peace. That's the blessing that the priest would often give to the people. And God says, I'm going to curse that. I'm going to change that blessing into a curse. It's going to curse the people. It's not going to bless them, right? Also, there's, there's kind of a twofold thing going on here. Is there was a lot of material blessing that came from being a priest because you were cared for. You managed the whole priestly order, the whole Levitical order, 
took care of the temple and all the sacrifices, and then you partook in the blessings of that. Part of that tithe went to you to sustain you and your family. So there was material blessings being in this honored position, and God says, I'm going to take those away. Taking those blessings shall now be a curse. You're not going to... You're going to be lacking in material income and tithe, all that, on account of your behavior, because you've despised my name. All right. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. What do you think's in view here? Sounds like your children are going to be cursed also. Yeah, it's kind of a the, the word is I will rebuke your seed in Hebrew. And we can take that to mean either the fruit of their labors, as in material blessing, or seed as in offspring, as in numericals. I think probably people, their numbers would go down. The blessing that God promised was that they would enter the land and they would prosper and increase in number. So this would be, no, that's not going to happen. You're, you're not going to prosper and you're going to decrease in number. And so that's what I think is in view here. There's going to be a steady decline in your prosperity and just the number of people. And this would be bad for the priest because if the number of people decrease, then their way of life is going to be severely impacted because then the tithe doesn't come in. And so they're going to not prosper either. So he's going to rebuke their offspring in that way. And then the fourth judgment, God will humiliate them and make them despised among the people. So how is he going to do that? How is he going to make them despised and abased before all the people? Could it be something like their hearts are going to be turned against the priests? Something to that effect. Yeah. How? How? How is? How does God picture He's going to do that? What? What's He going to do to the priest? And spread dung on their faces. He's going to spread dung on their faces. Yes. <laughs> That's some pretty harsh imagery. So, what was ta- when the priests made sacrifice, right? And they killed the animal. What were they to do with the dung? Burn it outside the camp. Yeah, they collected that. They took it outside the camp and it was to be burned. So God is telling them, no, you know what? I'm going to take these blemished, insufficient sacrifices that aren't worthy and instead of taking the dung and putting it outside the camp because it's unclean, it's profane, I'm going to spread that dung on your faces. I'm going to make you profane and unclean and unfit to serve as priests. Priests had to go through meticulous ceremonial cleansing before they even approached the holy place. They were, you know, were they really clean? They were ceremonially cleaned so that they could be in the presence of God, right? That's why they represented the people. The people, there's also sorts of regulations for them as well, but for this priest especially, they had to be prepared and fit to present themselves to the Lord. And, so, and the Lord's saying, I'm going to do the, the most unimaginable thing you can think of. I'm going to spread dung on your faces. 
I'm going to make you unfit. And you'll be despised by the people. If I had dung on my face up here, you guys would all be like, hey, uh, (laughs) that's gross, right? (laughs) Why are you doing that? (laughs) Go clean up, right? You wouldn't want to be around me. I would stink. It'd be unsightly, you know. But that's the picture that God gives of what he's going to do to the priests. And so the priests would be abhorred. They're not going to take kindly to Malachi's imagery here at all. So... And then also, not only they they were ceremonial, they had to wash themselves constantly. So isn't it just like that further humiliation, the further, like, you saying unimaginable, but like, am I wrong? Or is it like, they had to be like really clean compared to everybody else all the time. Right? Anytime anything happened, you had to wash your body, wash your clothing, you had to, you know, sit outside the camp to... Yeah, there was cleanliness for everybody, but the priests had even more right. on top on top of all of that in order for them to be in the service. Yeah. So, as the dung is taken away from the presence of the Lord, so shall they, because they are profane. So they 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 thought so little of the Lord, they're going to be removed, right? They dishonored him, they despised him. So God's saying, I'm not going to put up with that. You will be removed and cast on to the dung heap, put outside the camp, unfit, unclean, on the dung heap. So this is strong language. This is a strong curse. This is on top of all the other curses, right? This is God's heaping on curse upon curse. <clears throat> All right. Now, God's purpose in this judgment. So that's that's the judgment in a nutshell of what God's um, going to do to the priests. Well, what's his purpose? And I think his purpose is found in verse 4, um, which says, So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So... All these bad things are happening to them, right? They're living in squalor, pestilence. Temple's kind of, it's rebuilt, but it isn't fantastic. Um, They're scratching out a living still under Persian control. They're questioning, you know, whether following all the promises of God are really true. And just so that they don't misunderstand, God sent them a messenger to say, no, This isn't by accident or just misfortune. This is from me. You're living this way because of me. Because you still, the covenant is still in effect of curses and blessings, right? That hasn't been erased, right? So it's no surprise. If you're living like this, the curses are going to be upon you, right? The exile and return didn't nullify that. So this isn't by accident. This isn't just poor circumstances. This is so that you may know that it's from the Lord. And he's faithful to his word, right? He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't make promises that he doesn't follow through on. He's said, I will curse you. If you disobey, I will curse, right? So he's faithful to his word and to his words of blessing if you repent, right? And this is a this is a threat. God saying, I'm going to do these things, but then there is a sense in these things you can still repent and turn to me and receive all the blessings that I've promised you, right? 
And that's really what God's um, punishments and curses are about. He's not about just laying waste to his people. It's a a redemptive punishment. He's calling them back. He's saying, you're off the path. And the path is filled with all these curses that you're on. Get off that path. Get on the right path. So it's to drive them back to himself. It's not to destroy them, but it's to deliver them. And God's purposes for his people in any type of discipline or punishment of sorts is redemptive in its purpose. And so that's what we see here. God doesn't, I think of Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked, but that all would repent, like turn from your ways and live. And that's always his plea. It's even his plea for his people, turn and live. So that's God's purpose, overall purpose in his judgment for his people. So now I just want to zero in on the four failures for, of, the, of the priesthood. And what, why is God so angry? Why is God so angry with his priest? Well, number one, they had no heart for God's glory. Verse 2 says, If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and, the curse, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. And this is really the essence, the root failure of the priests is they had no heart for God. The fear of the Lord was not in them. They didn't walk before him in righteousness and revere him as holy. It reminds me of uh, a a story that I'm sure you're all familiar with about a couple priests who didn't serve the Lord rightly and paid the price immediately. Who was that? Nadab and Abihu, right? Um, Nadab and Abihu, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but they're offering incense that wasn't prescribed by the Lord. So they're, they're trying some new stuff out. I don't know, some people think maybe they were, there was alcohol involved and they, weren't, they were drunk at the time, which might explain why they were feeling so free to change up God's commands. But they offered incense that wasn't prescribed. God kills them instantly. And Aaron, you can imagine Aaron's not too happy, right? Because <laughs> his sons just died here. They had been consecrated for the priesthood, and now they're dead. And Moses tells Aaron this. He says, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. That's in view here. Nadab and Abihu took the Lord lightly and his commands lightly. And they didn't honor him and respect him as God in their hearts, right? And that's what the main failure, this, this failure of the heart, the heart issue regulates all the, their other failures. If your heart's right, other things will come into to place. So this is at the heart of their failure. Verse 8 to 9, they have turned aside from the ways of God. But you have turned aside from the way. You do not keep my ways. This is in verses 8 and 9. Their lives fell short of the standard that they were to teach and model. 
So they have deliberately stopped living in accordance with God's ordinances and statutes. They have turned from God's ways to their own ways. And this is seen in their lack of loyalty to the Lord, their casual ways of handling the priesthood and the sacrifices. Instead of when people brought the lame and and substandard sacrifices, instead of them saying, no, you can't do, you can't profane the Lord in this way, you have to bring the best, the unblemished, the perfect. They weren't doing that. They were very casual. They were letting the people basically run amok. Um, and there's, there is a teaching function that the priest had, and they, you know, just by example, they weren't, they weren't living it, and they weren't teaching it either. They were, by letting people bring in these substandard sacrifices that were abhorrent to the Lord, they weren't teaching them what the requirements of the Lord were, right? They also had teaching functions aside from this too, and that's mentioned in this passage. So they came to the Lord and they, they dishonored him because of their casual way of dealing with the sacrifices. And they were showing partiality in teaching. If we look at verse 9, he says, And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. What do you suppose that means, to show partiality in your instruction? That'd be like what uh, we hear in in the book of James, where uh, uh, the rich man is seated in a good place, and the poor man is like, stand over there, sit at my feet. Yeah, there's partiality there, yeah. They were taking the bad offerings, right? Taking the bad offering. I know you, you're, you're good. Right. Right. Were they deciding what for their own what to teach instead of teaching what God has commanded them to teach? Yeah. So they were basically picking and choosing what they wanted to teach the people. Or maybe more precisely, they were modifying what they were teaching to fit the wants and desires of the people, right? I'm going to show partiality. I'm going to be partial. Oh, you want to do that. Okay, well, well, God didn't really say that. Like, this is what he meant. And so you're changing the message. You're changing the word of God to fit your audience rather than your audience, your people conforming to the word of God. You're going to conform the word to your people. And so you're telling them what they want to hear. You're showing partiality, right? They were all, you know, the prophets and the priests, peace, peace, when there is no peace, right? They're telling, but that's what they want to know. That's what they want to hear. Micah 3.11 puts it this way, The heads of Jerusalem give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for hire. Its prophets divine for money. So there's a different um, mechanism in play. It's not, I'm going to preach God's word for the glory of God because I honor Him and I... I respect him, and it's his word, and I'm just a messenger of it. That um, desire and that motive has been swapped for a different motive, right? Oh, I can make a lot more money if I just tell people what they want to hear, right? I'll preach for a hire, right? Hey, it's like coming to the birthday party. Uh, What do you want me to do, (laughs) right? So you're hiring priests. 
to tell you what you want to hear. I think there's examples of that um, in Israel, in the northern kingdom, where, hey, I'm going to have me a priest. Hey, you, you be my personal priest, and then I'll keep you, and you tell me what I want to hear, right? So that's what's going on um, in this teaching ministry that the, that the priests had, was that they were massaging the message to their hearers. Um, and finally, the fourth failure was that they were causing many to stumble. And this is really a result, the end result of all the others. And this word stumble, what do you think that means, the word stumble for the Hebrew? It's imagery that we see all over. They weren't worshiping the Lord. They weren't worshiping the Lord. Falling into sin. Falling into sin, right? You know, leaving the path of God's law. Right. Falling, falling off to the side, into the ditch. Right. Yeah. Failure, failure to make progress on the journey of life. You're, you're rolling along and then you fall down. You stumble. You get set back. You lose your way. Right? The aim of the wicked is to make one stumble, right? That's what Proverbs uh, 4.16 talks about the wicked seek to make the righteous stumble, fall into sin. It's tied to that New Testament expression that we all see, um, to cause to sin. To stumble would be to cause somebody to sin. And that's what the priests are doing. They're causing the people that they were supposed to lead, feed, and protect, they are causing them to fall into sin. So, And it's not just... It's not just uh, their bad instruction, it's their bad example, right? Because the people see that the priests aren't even following God's law. And we all know, we've seen church leaders that have fallen and into serious sin, and it's devastating, it, and it, it hurts us. And for some, it's to the point where they go, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with this whole, this is all a farce, right? If the priests won't even honor and respect and give glory to God in the way they handle the priesthood, why should I be concerned about any of this, right? And so it leads many to fall away in many different ways. And the priests are responsible, not just in the poor teaching and, and the wrong teaching, but in, in their uh, example, which can be such a violation of trust. The people that have trusted you that it just causes them to to walk away, right? And I would just, just as a point, a side note, like if that happens, if you've ever been a victim of that, which some of us have been to other churches where we've seen that happen firsthand, is you have to look to Christ, right? You can't look at the person. We're all going to let each other down in one way or another. But you can't judge Christ on somebody who's fallen into sin in a, in a horrific way. So don't let that knock the wind out of your sails for Christ. Look to Him. All right. Four failures. Okay, so now let's look at the marks of godly of a godly priesthood. The marks of a godly priesthood. We'll see from this passage that there are several marks. First is they fear God and stand in awe of His name. And we can look at verse 5, where this 
is true. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And we can contrast this with with verse 2, right? In their hearts they did not honor God, fear him, or stand in awe of him. So godly priesthood fears the Lord. They fear God, they're in awe of him, and it changes the way they live. They live according to that. And this is at the heart of the matter for a priest. For a priest to function correctly in his office, he must have a heart for God. Imagine, and we're seeing the disaster of having priests that aren't, do not have a heart for God or the things of God. It's a disaster for them and for the people. All right, the second thing, second mark, they proclaim and defend the truth of God's word. So if we look at verse 6 and 7, and I'll kind of truncate this a little bit, but he says, True instruction was in his mouth, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of, of host. So why, why should men seek instruction from the priests, from those verses? Why should they seek instruction? What's that? He's the messenger of the Lord. He's the messenger of the Lord. What's, so what's implicit in that? To listen to him is to listen to God. To listen to him is to listen to God. So the priest isn't delivering his message. He's delivering the Lord's message, right? And that's why the people should pay attention and get instruction from him because it's not his message that he's giving, which is the exact opposite of what we're seeing in these priests in Malachi's day where they're giving their own message, for their own motives and for their own glory. So we can't adjust the message of the word to please men. We must please God. That's the role that the priest, the true mark of a, of a godly priest. All right. Marks of a godly priest or priesthood, they walk with God. We can see that in verse 6. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. What kind of imagery does that spark in your mind? A, pr- a person who walks with the Lord in peace and uprightness. Adam in the garden. Adam in the garden, right? Yeah? Right? His whole lifestyle would be one of, of a godly person. Yeah. There wouldn't be any inequity, and he wouldn't be stealing, lying, or, you know, beyond his priesthood, his whole life would be doing the right thing. Right. Walking in communion with God, right? Not, not just a rule follower, but a life devoted to God and walking with Him. Not, not just having a lot of facts rolling around and say, like, I know the law, these are, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this, right? It's not that. It's one of walking means together, right? Relationship, communion. Adam had communion with God in the garden, right? It was perfect. Now that's been destroyed, but we still can walk with the Lord, even though we still sin, even though we still aren't perfect, we are going to sin. But we're walking with God, and that means even when we do sin, we go to Him and, and seek Him and repent. And, you know, the priests get it. That's why they're offering sacrifices daily, right? It's because they had to offer sacrifices for themselves, because they knew they were inadequate and they needed a perfect Savior in their place. But they walk with God. They 
They have a personal relation and devotion to God, and they walk, the gen- in general, they walk in righteousness, not in sin. So, they're not entangled in sin. They're broken over their sin. They strive for holiness. They're not perfect, but they're faithful. In a, humanly speaking, they're faithful. They're straightforward. They're transparent. So they walk. We would call that walking in the fear of the Lord. That's what you see that term all throughout the Bible, to walk in the fear of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? That means you're walking, knowing who God is and knowing who you are, and you run to Him, and you listen to Him, and you seek to please Him in all you do. So that's another mark of godly priesthood. And another mark is that they have a saving ministry. If you look at verse 6, it says, He turned many from iniquity. And you can compare that, verse 8, rather than causing many to stumble, He turned many from iniquity. Right? So there's, fruit, there's a fruitful ministry going, a saving ministry. Instead of leading people in further into sin, like these priests were doing, all these people were being led into sin, into dishonor, into the curse. A godly priest will lead many from iniquity to the path, right? right? We have this saying in my house, you know, it's code word for like, you're about to get in trouble. I say, you're on the wrong path. With my kids, I just say, you're on the wrong path. You're on the path of destruction. You need to like, get back on the path of blessing. And the priest's the way they're acting in, in Malachi, they're leading their people that they've been entrusted with down the path of iniquity when they should be leading them on a path of righteousness. Instead of causing them to stumble, they should be causing them to grow in their, in their love and adoration for their king and follow him. So they have this saving ministry. All right. So, a little application, and we got some time here. How does this all apply to us as God's new covenant people? We don't have priests, right? The function of the priesthood was made obsolete after the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and the priest and his priestly ministry. I know the Roman Catholics have priests. That's because they need, why do they need priests in the Roman Catholic churches? Because they, they have the Mass every Sunday where they sacrifice Jesus over and over. But we don't see that office in the New Testament. We don't see a priestly office because Christ has fulfilled that priestly office for us. You can look at Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 9. talks all about that. But we are a royal priesthood. Peter talks about that. A nation of priests, right? Revelation talks a little bit about that. But Jesus... Jesus, in a sense, in the sense that we no longer need a human mediator, we can go direct, we have access, right? The priests in the Old Covenant served as an, a mediator to, for God's people to interact with God. So it was mediated by the priests. So the only access you had to God was through the priestly function. But Jesus destroyed all of that because he, he brought us to God, right? So we have direct access. We don't have to have, he's our mediator and he's God. So we don't have this mediator between us any longer that functions within our covenant community. 
but we do when we when we look at these verses that t- talk about us, God's people, as a royal priesthood or a holy priesthood. We don't function as priests. We don't do what priests of the old covenant did, right? So there's no official priesthood in the New Testament. And the priests did, by the way, have a teaching ministry within Israel. We see that in Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge, because the priests aren't teaching them. We see that in Ezra 7.10, where Ezra, who's in a priest in the, in the clan of Levi, he made it his point, Ezra 7.10, to study the law and to teach it to the people, right? There was a teaching function. In Nehemiah 8, also, when all the people came back to Israel and they were rebuilding the, the temple, and Ezra stood before the people. Remember, he got up in front of all the people and he read the law. Do you guys remember that? He read the law and the people were cut to the heart. But as he was reading the law, the Levites were amongst the people and they were giving them the sense of what, like the meaning of what they were hearing, right? So they heard it properly. So there's always been this teaching function of the priest. It's always been there. It's always part of their duties. There's so much focus on the sacrificial system that it kind of overshadows in the narrative of, of Israel. It overshadows that, that role, but that is what they did. They were, like, like the Lord said in our passage, they were to guard knowledge and teach. So even, even this passage clearly shows there's a teaching role that the priest had. So, so I, don't, I think there's, it's not hard to cross over and say, hey, pastors today have a similar role, a teaching role. There's no sacrificial system. We don't administer sacrifices like the priests, and we don't function as priests. But we share as teachers, as elders, we share a teaching ministry that the priests did. So how do we apply this to us? Well, apply them to the elders of the church. And so... So this whole, I mean, this is all about the elders, right, for us. So Ben, this is for me and you. (laughs) No, this is for all of us, right? How should we be led in the church? We need men who fear the Lord, who who walk in His ways. We need to be able to proclaim and defend God's Word. We need to walk with God, growing in His likeness through His Spirit. And we're to have a saving ministry, a ministry that directs people to God, not away from Him. Right? And you can see all these principles. I was going to put up some verses, but basically read First Timothy. All these things are in there. How should you behave? Watch your life and doctrine. Preach the Word in season, out of season, for... There'll come a time when people will only want to hear what their itching ears have to say, right? There's instruction after instruction on how we are to lead as elders. And so this is this should stand as how important God takes the instruction and leadership of his church. I don't want God to accuse me and say, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna put dung on your face. You abhor me, right? We want, that's, oh, I have to be very careful with God's word. And for you, it says you need leaders like this. If you don't have leaders like this in your church, you need to get new leaders or go somewhere else, right? 
not perfect leaders, because none of us are perfect, but men who walk the talk, right? Men who <coughs> lead by example, men who know the scripture and cut it cleanly. And so, and, and I would just say here at Cow Creek, you have men that are more than willing to talk with you. And hey, we have sin that we don't see and we need the body to help us. The disciplined function of the church should happen that way to where we're holding, you can hold your elders accountable and talk with us. And when you see us uh, going down the wrong path, we need you to do that. Because we as sinners, like everybody, are the last ones to see the cream cheese on our face, right? The sin. We don't see it. And so we need the body. So so that's... I would just kind of add, um, I mean, I, I think in a sense it's unique to the elders or pastors, but um, in, in that they have a special responsi- leadership responsibility. But everything you have listed there is normal Christianity. Right. It's just everybody in the body is to fear God, to, to hold fast to God's word, and whatever, you know, they have different offices, you know, a, a mother, a father, a friend, a co-worker, I mean... These things are to characterize our whole lives as, as believers. For sure. But there's a, the difference is, I guess, is office or responsibility. Yeah, yeah. But that's a great point. I mean, even the all the character qualifications for elders in First Timothy three would apply to everybody, right? That basically, when Paul's telling Timothy appoint elders, they need to meet these qualifications. Basically, like they're Christians, <laughs> right? They're walking the walk. Go ahead. And as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, the first one, the fear, the fear in God is standing all over his name. Is, I know Isaiah was a prophet, not a priest, but I've been I was reading Isaiah recently, and you know, he when he had this vision of God in Isaiah six, whole you know, he sees the heavens open and sees the glory of Christ, and then it was after that that he was given this commission to proclaim God's word, like to go and and declare His word to His people. So that seems to me like it's the foundational. Of all of those applications, all of those elements, fearing God and standing in awe of His name is the bedrock, and then out of that will flow the right viewing of His Word, the, the daily walking with the Lord, and the ministry. Uh, if you you can't change the order, it has that's to the non-negotiable. Yeah, it has this has to be built on that foundation, yeah. right? Yeah, you take that away, and then all the like the priests were not unaware of all the requirements of the Lord. They just was like, eh, right? I got different, I got different motives. I got my own agenda here, right? But if you don't have that bedrock foundation of of walking with the Lord, yeah, you're building your house in the sand, right? <laughs> So what do we do when we see churches, either in our church or others, that uh, don't, I mean, you're, as you're talking, it's like, I can just, this is like, a, uh, I don't want to name too many names. The, na- you know, the church that will not be named? <laughs> this is happening today. Exactly what Malachi 2 is happening. Exactly what God is condemning the priest for is happening today, all over the place, in the name of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's... It's disheartening. It's sad, and we can pray for Christians that are in those churches. Like we, there's, I think we need to be careful when we see other churches that are really going off and dabbling into areas that we know is sin and wrong, where they're distorting the gospel. Um, I think we just need to be careful. It's okay to be hard on the leadership, 
but that doesn't characterize everybody in that church, right? So there's probably true Christians at these churches, but they're just being deceived or they don't know yet. And we can be praying that God would save those Christians out and so get them into a healthy spot in a healthy church. And we pray for churches every week, right, that are preaching the gospel, that they would have an influence in our community to draw in believers so that they can be fed and so they're not starving to death without, you know, not receiving the word each week. I mean, it's a maybe a pandemic of sorts. But Steve Lawson wrote a book years ago called Famine in the Land, right? And I read that book when I was in a different church and I was starving to death, right? And I was like, yes, this is what I need. And God led me to Cow Creek years ago, right? And I felt like I washed up on the shores of the, like I'd been adrift in the ocean and then got beached on this beautiful island. I'm like, finally, <laughs> the word of the Lord is being preached, right? So I, we can be, I just, we can't be self-righteous in saying, well, we got our act together, you know, but we can be, just continue to pray and preach the word and let God work on the hearts of our community to bring people in. And then be willing to have some maybe awkward conversations, just probing with people that you know that maybe are stuck in a church like that. And just, you know, not confrontational, but just like, like I forget the apologist's name, but he says, like, just put a stone in their shoe. <laughs> so they're thinking about it, like, oh, yeah, um, I need God's word. So, any other questions? I didn't really cover any of the technical parts of of the passage, but if there are other things in that passage, I can try to direct you to Ben um, <laughs> if they're too complicated. <laughs> the only thing I would add to that is that as individuals as Christians following the path is our responsibility to not be false to the truth. And we represent Christ in in our daily lives. And I have people in my own life that have fallen away from Christian religion because they've seen people who are so sinful. And we're we're all sinners. We're not perfect. And, uh, you know, but... It's our own responsibility to uh, to own up to our faults, as well as to say, "Hey, look, uh, this is what it is to be a Christian. I'm not perfect, but this is how I should be." Right. Right. Yeah, and we, we all struggle. <laughs> None of us like our sin pointed out, and no. but all of us need to be humble and recognize, like the jig's up. That's why we're all here. We sin, right? And when other people see that and talk to us about it, it's a mercy from the Lord, right? Um, so we need to, to accept that and think. And maybe they're wrong, but maybe they're right, you know? And so we need to, to take that to heart. And I would also say that we need to be careful, um, too, as I'm thinking about it, in just in our own understanding of God's Word and our own doctrine and how pure our doctrine is like how closely we are following God's word and understand it we're all on a spectrum right none of us have our doctrine all lined up 
and just we're not right on every point. There's points of doctrine that I'm mistaken on, that even Jeremy or Ben, like we're all, we don't have all the correct. Now, the big things, yes, we got the, the most important doctrines of the gospel. We have to all agree on that, right? The deity of Christ, the atonement, um, Christ's death and resurrection, all of those things. But we don't need to nitpick and go, oh, you got that wrong. You're in sin, like, right? Because you're wrong, like, on maybe this finer point, point and a, maybe a secondary doctrine. So we don't need to be too hard on each other. We need to have grace. We're all growing in our knowledge and understanding. And there's things I used to believe that uh, now I go, oh, man, I didn't, that, I was wrong. Like, I was totally wrong right there. And so, but I've grown and... I understand better, and so we all have to give each other a little room if we don't have all our dominoes just set up just right, you know, of our doctrine. So we're, we're all growing in that, and so just have grace for each other in that too. Yep. All right. I'll pray and we'll dismiss. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Cow Creek, a church where we aim to deliver your word, your message to your people. And we know that Christ is the shepherd of the church. He is our high priest that has given us access to to you. He cares for his people. And we thank you for caring for us so well. We pray that you would help us to walk in your ways, to stay on the path. Father, to be quick to repent when we get off the path and, and get on the path of blessing. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to, to think about your word and apply it to our hearts, I pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you guys.